Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. As Christians, we believe the peace of Christ is a central teaching of Christianity. And it raises the question then, how do we read the Old Testament? And maybe, you know, especially those parts where God is depicted as a kind of warrior God. And uh, it seems to contradict the picture of God that we find in Christ. And I think this passage that we're about to read teaches us how to read the Bible and these sections of Scripture as applying spiritually. And this is how Paul, this is how John, Hebrews, but it's also how the early church fathers, really up until the Reformation, read the Old Testament or read the Bible. We might call this a spiritual reading or a theological reading, an allegorical reading. But the principle is that Christ is our guide in reading the Bible. And it's here that we are ensured that we draw the proper lesson. And so look at Galatians 4, 21 through 25. But in this section, Paul uses the word and how we translate it. You know, he says, these things are told allegorically for our edification as Christians. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Paul is giving us a reading here that is actually a kind of reversal of the common Jewish reading, but he's suggesting the true lesson of the law And when we say the law, we mean the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He says we have to read it through Christ. We have to read it theologically. We have to read it spiritually. And so the New Testament uses battle imagery. You know, Paul will use the shield of faith, the armament of salvation. It uses family imagery that were adopted into family. It uses psychological imagery to describe, first of all, a form of enslavement. There's a universal enslavement, and it can function in many different fashions. But then there is emancipation. And the point of Paul's reading in Galatians is to picture this emancipation. And part of the reason for the metaphorical language is that the problem of law and violence are so pervasive. There's no singular way of describing the problem and the solution 
as both, I think, are pervasive. They're universal. And they pertain to really everything. And they overlap, though, in a central problem and answer. And it is the language, in the language of the New Testament. It's of, you know, John will talk about cosmic proportions. But Paul also in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Colossians. It pertains to the world uh, it, so that we speak it, we live it. And the incarnation tells us the answer is worked from the inside out. And I believe this pertains to our hermeneutic strategy. And so as Paul describes it, Jesus came from a woman coming to be under the law, Galatians 4, 4. Jesus came to be under the law, but we are not to fit Jesus to the law, but the law to Jesus. That is, the Pentateuch does not determine how we understand Jesus. Jesus determines how we understand the Pentateuch, the law. We understand the sacrificial system, the politics even. You know, when we say the Pentateuch, it's actually the politics of Exodus, the politics of the kingdom of Israel. All of that is going to come to make sense. The temple system, the sacrificial system, we read that through the frame of Christ. And so if we make the mistake of putting Jesus to the frame of the Old Testament, then we're going to make the mistake of saying, oh, he's just an, another sacrifice, or he's another prophet, or maybe another revolutionary. And I think this explains that what is happening partly in Scripture is that we're given an interpretive strategy in the New Testament, reading the Old Testament, and this is the predominant hermeneutic of the church fathers, and really right up until the Protestant Reformation. The presumption is that Christ is the hermeneutic key, the interpretive key to the Old Testament. Say, it, making sense of things that I think otherwise don't make sense. You know, the sacrificial system, Judaism, I think it doesn't hold together in and of itself. And Paul, in explaining the significance of Mount Sinai, says these things are told allegorically. And we should, I guess, just believe what Paul is saying, that we read the story allegorically. So he very rarely will read the Old Testament as a literalist. Paul is explaining the significance of the law, but in his explanation, he's explaining that both Jews and Gentiles, he says, were enslaved to the stoica, to the fundamental principles, the principles of the cosmos. And the law was not an exception of that. He's just using the Jews as an illustration of the universal problem. He says these elementary things, you know, they entail the, the stoica. They might refer to the material world or the elementary aspects of language, of being human. It might refer to idols or religion. Maybe Paul is likening the religions of the world to children's earliest lessons. You know, prior to Christ, this is the way people thought. But he's also saying this about the Jews, that this is a kind of passe way of understanding. And he's actually going to say that the law is a schoolboy's 
tutor or custodian, you know, that brings someone to Christ. His argument in verse 8, if Galatian Christians return to the law, he says this is like returning to idols. This is a strange thing for a Jew to say. If you're a Christian and you go back to the law, it's like returning to idolatry, to the impoverished elemental principles which formerly enslaved all religion, and particularly the Jewish religion, in Paul's explanation, suffered from what we might call this deep grammar or this elementary way of talking that enslaves all religionists prior to Christ. And so to read the Old Testament and the law literally, or as of equal weight and as guiding you know, to Christ, would be nothing short, Paul says, of turning again to the weak and impoverished elemental principles and to be enslaved once again. And so Paul is teaching the Galatians that the law, including the story of Sarah, of Hagar, of Jacob, of Esau, the story of Sinai, there is no more critical story, they all play the role of what? the maidservant. To treat the maidservant as if she is the free woman is to mistake freedom for bondage. He says in 430, cast out the maidservant and her son, for by no means shall the maidservant's son inherit along with the free woman's son. That is, Paul's allegorical interpretive strategy puts the container of the law in its proper place. It's a tutor, it's a maidservant. You know, what the Jews thought was key, Paul says, no, actually that's secondary. It's now, in fact, counted among the impoverished elements. Apart from Christ, the Old Testament is part of the problem. In Corinthians, Paul explains that to miss this theological sense in which Christ was present in the law. He says this is to miss, and he uses an allegory here. It's to miss the true spiritual drink. He says for the rock, you know, referring to the rock that Moses struck, but of course actually he's referring to the rock that is Christ. He says the rock was the anointed one. Paul makes the point throughout that in light of Christ, in 10.6 of Corinthians, now these things have become typological figures for us, so that we should no longer lust after evil things, as indeed those men lusted. The Old Testament didn't solve the problem. The Pentateuch didn't solve the problem. To take the letter of the law as an end in itself, as if it contains life, is to fall under the principle that cause the Israelites to lust and create idols, cause them to be unfaithful idolaters. In both Galatians and Corinthians, Paul is describing this fundamental desire connected with the law. The problem and the law are interconnected, causing them, he says in 10, 7 to 8, to go whoring after idols. And so he once again emphasizes that the correct reading is the allegorical, the spiritual, the theological understanding which reads Christ as the lesson. In 10.11 he says, 
Now these things happened to them figuratively and were written for the purpose of our admonition for whom the ends of the ages have arrived. So a spiritual or theological reading is going to find Christ in the Old Testament. This is what Paul says, you know, that it is is it written in the scriptures that he died for our sins, that he was raised. That is, Paul and the writers of the New Testament find the gospel in the Hebrew scriptures. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God is the authority in whom we should have confidence due to Christ. Not the words of scripture per se, but it's through Christ that scripture comes alive. He says, it is God in 3.6 who also made us competent as ministers of a new covenant not of scripture now I'm actually saying I think a correct reading here the reading we usually have is not of the letter but letter here can be just scripture word not of scripture but of spirit for scripture the word the letter slays that is the law the letter apart from Christ slays it kills but the spirit makes alive a text-based a book-based faith or a letter-based faith he says is a ministry of death but the spirit and the spiritually based interpretation lifts and this is Paul's illustration again reading the veil that was put over the face of Moses allegorically he says this veil is lifted he's using the interpretive method to explain the interpretive method this spiritual reading first of all it is not based it's not caught up on the historical not that it's dismissive of that but it's on the lesson to be drawn through Christ on the theological lesson for the admonition for the edification of the believers you know, this is the way that the writer of Hebrews also says that God has spoken in the Old Testament through a multiplicity of sources in various ways. The plurality of words and messengers is contrasted with the singular message and messenger which brings this plurality into unity. Now he has spoken to us in Christ Jesus. So Hebrews, like Galatians, argues that the former word or law, it was imperfect, an imperfect understanding of who God is, of how God deals with us. The writer of Hebrews says that it was through angels, through mediators, that the law was delivered to Moses. And the message, he says, did not come directly from God, but now God has spoken to us directly. And so the implication is that mediators in some way marked or marred or made incomplete the quality of the representation. This imperfect message shaped by imperfect messengers, this is the writer of Hebrews, he says it resulted in its hearers perishing in the desert, missing both the promised land and the promised rest. But he says, now, today, you have access to the promised rest. Again, he's using allegory, metaphor, 
But he's saying these things need to be read metaphorically. They were bound to death by the imperfection of the message. But now the full message has resulted in freedom from bondage to this former message. As Romans states it in 7.6, Now we have been released from the law, having died wherein we were imprisoned, so that we slave in newness of spirit and not in scripture's obsolescence. It is not that the law or the scriptures are abolished, but their punishing effect or their idolatrous desire, their kind of oppressive force have been suspended. For when we were in the flesh, the passions of sins which came through the law acted in our bodily members for the purpose of bearing the fruit of death. What's the fruit of the Pentateuch? What's the fruit of the Mosaic Law? What's the fruit of Judaism apart from Christ? Paul says it's the fruit of death. Now that doesn't mean that it's obsolete or set aside. It means that Christ brings a coherence to it. And so Paul's cumulative description of this law, it includes Moses, Sinai, Jacob, Esau, the commands subsequent to Abraham, the law, the scriptures, the word, you know, must include, this is the, much of the Old Testament, but it's also connected at a deep level. He's uh, equating it with the elementary principles that are universal, the childish language, the idolatrous inclination. This is connected with this universal law of sin and death. At points in Romans, you know, it's not clear. Is Paul talking about the Mosaic Law? Is he talking about the prohibition in Genesis? Is he talking about some sort of natural law? It no longer matters, as all law is the law of sin and death. So that's the point of departure, I think, of the early church fathers. Going back to the earliest you know, theologian, Origen draws out this allegorical or theological or spiritual way of reading. For example, he goes to Romans 7, 1 to 3, in talking about peace and, and how we have peace. So, you know, Paul talks about the woman who has a husband who consorts with another man. This is Origen. He says, the word woman doubtless stands for the soul that was held fast by the law of Moses. And about which it is said, so long as her husband lives, she is bound by the law. But if her husband, doubtless the law, has died, he calls her soul, which seems to be bound, released. Paul is saying, according to Origen, we're released from the obligation of the law. It is necessary for the law to die. He concludes, well, Moses is dead and the law is dead, and the legal precepts are now invalid. And he patterns his claim, this allegorical, this theological reading, he calls it rightly handling the law after the apostles, and he appeals to Jesus. The woman, according to origin, stands for every soul bound by the law. It's the universal problem. The dead husband stands for a law that no longer rouses adulterous desire. And all of this 
is in a series of sermons from Joshua. He's preaching from the Old Testament book of Joshua and teaching us these lessons about the gospel. He's doing what the apostles did. His point is that like this woman defined by the law and subject to to desire, we understand Joshua is Jesus. It's the same name in Hebrew. We can understand the true enemy. How do we read the story of Joshua now? He says that this adulterous sin is the way we read it. That's what's afflicted. That's what's killed off. This is origin. You will read in the Holy Scriptures about the battles of the just ones and the slaughter and carnage of murderers and that the saints spare none of their deeply rooted enemies. If they do spare them, they are even charged with sin. You should understand the wars of the just by the method I set forth above, that these wars are waged against sin. But will the just ones endure if they reserve even a little bit of sin? Therefore, this is said of them, they did not leave behind even one who might be saved or might escape. Origen says this book, Joshua, makes sense only reading it through the lens of Christ. The battle of the Christian that we've joined is against sin. Both the surface, you know, the wars, the carnage, literal wars, and the deep violence of the law, sinful desire. These are suspended in Christ. And in this sense, we can agree, he says, that we can sanctify war. But of course, what he means is the war against sin. It is a war to become holy in body and spirit. By destroying all the enemies of your soul, that is the blemishes of sin. The battle is one in which you mortify your members and you cut away all evil desires and you are crowned as a victor by Christ Jesus. Our true Joshua. Origin, as he states it, his point is that the wars that Jesus or Joshua wades, they ought to be understood allegorically. This is the way that Paul reads. This is the way that the writer of Hebrews reads. This is the way that we should read. That the entire mosaic system, inclusive of the tabernacle, the sacrifices, that these are a type and shadow of heavenly things. That's from Hebrews. And so too the wars that are waged through Jesus, Joshua, The slaughter of kings and enemies must also be said to be a shadow, a type of heavenly things. And so he defends this theological reading, this allegorical suspension and transformation of the law. He appeals directly to Paul. All these things which happened figuratively to them were written for us, for whom the end of the ages has arrived. And he makes the case that to cling to a literal historical reading is to cling to an understanding of God that is not fitting for the Christian. To wars, the destruction of enemy, Israelites seizing kingdoms. This literal sense mistakes Joshua, the son of Nun, for the son of God. And he says we cannot do that. The one who is an outward Jew and who insists on circumcision, 
you know, kind of literal historical understanding, is committed to reading the violence of Joshua literally and in the process misses what it means to be a Jew secretly as a Christian and to receive the circumcision of the heart. And so the fleshly reader of scripture, the literal reader of scripture, the historicist reading of scripture, misses Jesus. Casting out and destroying, you know, Jesus is the one who truly casts out the powers that rule our soul and says, behold, the kingdom of God is within you. This is the way that the Hebrew scriptures become scripture, that they become Christian scriptures through Christ. And so it comes down to a choice between the violent fleshly inheritance of the law of Moses or the peace of Christ. And to cling to the fleshly reading, according to Origen, is disqualification from the inheritance of Christ. He says, if therefore you wish to be made worthy to pursue the inheritance from Jesus, and if you wish to claim a portion from him, you must first end all wars and abide in peace, so that it may be said according to the land of your flesh, the land cease from wars. This is a picture of the kingdom, that they beat their swords into plowshares. And for Origen, that is a key passage. To what then do all these things lead us? Origen's questions. He says to this, the book does not so much indicate to us the deeds of the son of Nun as it represents for us the mysteries of Jesus my Lord. For he himself is the one who assumes power after the death of Moses. He is the one who leads the army and fights against Amalek. What was foreshadowed there on the mountain by lifted hands was the time when he attaches them to his cross, triumphing over the principalities and powers. So this allegorical reading, it's the hermeneutic that prevailed certainly in the apostolic period in much of the first century, it's the approach of Hebrews, Galatians, Corinthians, Romans. And so the literal interpretation with the peculiar meaning it will take on, you know, the literalism or the historicism that we have in the modern period to direct development from out of the Reformation, prior to which, you know, the theological reading was normative. So not to read the Bible in the proper manner, I think is not to read the Bible at all as Christians. Scripture is inspired only when read through Christ, only when read spiritually, theologically. And to read the Bible as if it encourages a picture of God that is violent, a picture of a kind of warrior God, is to miss the peace of Christ and the predominant witness of the church through the ages. To read the Bible through the hermeneutic born in the 16th century is superstitious, it's bizarre, and it's a, a late Protestant invention and not Christian in any meaningful way. So we read the Old Testament following the model of Paul, following John, following Hebrews, following the early church fathers such as Origen. We read it for our edification in Christ promoting peace and promoting the Prince of Peace and not clinging to violence. 
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.